0: you would open your Bibles uh, to Luke chapter 10. We're going to complete Luke 10. And um, it's it's a fascinating, as, as we mention each week, this part of Luke beginning uh, toward the end of the ninth chapter and going all the way through the 19th chapter. This is so-called travel narrative. It's not I think people call it that because A, they don't have anything else to call it. But B, uh, if you look at verse 38 of chapter 10, where we're going to begin today, it says, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. You get this very nebulous uh, statement about um, movement. And that, I think, is what derives this this travel narrative. Uh, Jesus is, is heading toward Jerusalem if he's not... In and around Jerusalem itself, one one uh, commentator uh, that I have a lot of respect for thinks uh, all of this is happening sort of with Jerusalem as a headquarters. But Jerusalem won't be front and center <coughs> until until um, later in Luke. But but what we're seeing here is is this uh, uh, the subject matter changes dramatically from vignette to vignette, and I we looked at. Chiasm's. I'm not going to get into all that today, but I mentioned that um, sometimes this, um, this 10 or 11 chapter segment of Luke uh, is put together as a large chiasm. And, and uh, what we're looking at today in, in chapter 10 has its equivalent. If you remember the Good Samaritan uh, chiastic structure that we had there, uh, this one will have its, its affinity with chapter 18 of Luke. And uh, in, in really um, verses twenty eight, 29 and thirty, but we'll get to that down the road. Uh, but where we're going today, having just come out of one of the most familiar and challenging uh, parables of Jesus, the parable of the Good Samaritan, which I think is certainly one of the most radical teachings, in, in all of Christendom that that, uh, that applies to every believer these notions of loving your enemy. Uh, we saw that unpacked earlier in Luke uh, and uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan does a very good job of, of presenting uh, the mandate that every Christian has and what it means. And now we're going to go into a little uh, verse 38 through 42, Luke 5 verses of Mary and Martha, and frankly, if you run into liberal commentators, they say, "Well, you know, this this proves that the Bible is just this random. Uh, There's nothing random in the Bible. This is a book that the Holy Spirit has written uh, through the the hearts and minds of of many people." But uh, what happens here as we go through this? this uh, so-called travel narrative is we're going to see this over and over and over again. You move from one topic and you think, okay, we're going to, next week he'll do this. And it's something totally different on the surface of it. But what is not different, what Jesus is going to do with these two women, Mary and Martha, is exactly what he's been doing with his 12 disciples. He's teaching and training what it means to be a Christian. Now this one, uh, it, it's uh, primarily going to going to focus on the importance of God's word, but I think uh, even more than that, what it's focusing on uh, this Mary Martha event is balance. How to be balanced as you live a Christian life, and that has become increasingly difficult chronologically from the Garden of Eden forward. Uh, How can a Christian be balanced in a world that is moving at the speed this one is? Because what is required to be balanced is time. There is no short-circuiting Jesus. You don't get, you can't get little snippets. This isn't uh, an internet thing. Um, And by the way, speaking of of that, uh, this thing, Uh, In the world in which you and I live today, in my humble opinion, this is the greatest addiction on planet Earth. Uh, More than meth, more than cocaine, more than marijuana, more than pornography, more than alcohol, more than anything else, this is what people are addicted to. Uh, Now, that has been a a programmatic advance as technology has come online. And I just wanted to... uh, I was sitting there at my desk, and I, I was looking at some of the books I had staring me at the face, and let me read them chronologically, how how the uh, usually the, the subheading of the title is, is what's important here. There was a man named Neil Postman who wrote a book in 1985 called Amusing Ourselves to Death. Now, he was focused a little bit on uh, the computers, but mostly in his... Uh, time when he wrote that on television. Uh, In 1990, a man from France, Jacques Ellul, wrote a book called The Technological Bluff. Ellul, more than anybody else, saw the, the, the pitfalls of technology. I'm not... Obviously, technology solves many, many things. It enables us to get heart rhythms going again without surgeries and all of this sort of thing, but... Like everything else, technology can, can be used badly, and I think um, the worst part of it is it's created, recreated Babel. Uh, it has not been possible to have a world with Babel in it since early Genesis until today. Today we've got Babel again. Uh, the entire world can speak to one another uh, through the use of technology, and that is not a good thing. Here's what Elul said, uh, just uh, one quote from this book written in 1990, that's 33 years ago today. That's kind of hard to imagine. Um, He says, an easily distracted consumer society is caught up in a rapidly developing uncontrollable technological system. Every problem generates a technological solution. Computers breed ever larger, more fragile, and vulnerable systems. But the solutions raise more and greater problems than they solve. Responsibility, contemplation, civility, and spirituality all suffer. Uh, That is a brilliant insight that has has certainly come true, and that's part of what uh, I am talking about here in a world that is, is moving so rapidly, so technologically a uh, 1992, Postman wrote another one called Technopoly, The Surrender of Culture to Technology. 1993, a man named David Wells wrote a book called No Place for Truth or Whatever Happened to Evangelical Theology. 1994, Mark Knoll wrote a book called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. The premise of his book is that basically the evangelical today doesn't have a mind. Uh, we've sold out to, uh, to easy fix technology. We don't read anymore. Uh, we don't study anymore. So um, all of these things increase the problem that we're going to see Mary and Martha illustrate. Uh, also 1994, David Wells again, God in the Wasteland, the reality of truth in a world of fading dreams. 1996, Jim Boyce, Two Cities, Two Loves, Christian Responsibility in a Crumbling Culture. 1996, and this book is just incredibly brilliant. Harold O.J. Brown wrote a book called The Sensate Culture, meaning a culture that that is turned into sense orientation. Uh, His subtitle, Western Civilization Between Chaos and Transformation. 1998, David Wells again, Losing Our Virtue, Why the Church Must Recover, uh, it's Moral Vision. 2005, David Wells again, Above All Earthly Powers, Christ in a Postmodern World. 2008, David Wells again, The Courage to be Protestant. 2014, David Wells again, God in the Whirlwind, How the Holy Love of God Reorients Our World. 2022, about four months ago, uh, on a, I've mentioned this book before by a man named Carl Truman. It's called Strange New World. Uh, it will explain to you how in the world things are as they are today. Uh, and I would allude to the fact that 100 years ago, J. Gresham Machin wrote a book called Christianity and Liberalism, in which he made the case that the liberal church is not a church at all. It is not Christianity. It is not Christian light. It is not uh, Christianity with a little bit of error. It is, it is erroneous. That book is more appropriate today, a hundred years later than the date he wrote it. But you get the tenor of all of that, the tenor of it. All of those things, all of those men who saw that, and that's, I I didn't have the heart to continue, but uh, I wrote down some other books that were staring at the face. Os Guinness, John MacArthur, Gene Veith, John Frank, Vern Poitras, Al Mohler, uh, C.S. Lewis, Tolkien, Michael Horton. David Pallis and Paul Tripp, all those guys are are writing all these books also. In other words, you and I have been, uh, the church, I won't say you and I, I say the church in America has been asleep at the switch to miss all of these scholars who've been pounding away that there's something very, very serious going on here that is detrimental and we've ignored it. And now we're in the middle of this kind of situation uh, where we find ourselves today. So, uh, <clears throat> technology run amok. Uh, how can uh, you grow in holiness when that demands time? And it's the one thing that technology robs you of. Uh, people cannot get away from this thing. I, as you know, uh, we live in Seneca. So we I've got this 45 minute drive, uh, five days a week or so, What drives me crazy, there's 32 traffic lights between our house and (laughs) me. And I know the nuances of all of them. I probably know the mechanics if they ever had to adjust. The lights will turn red. You'll sit there. The light turns green and nobody moves. Why? Because as soon as a red light stops people, they start texting. They've all got their phones. They can't live without it. Uh, You probably saw that uh, recent survey of of college-age kids in America Within the last two weeks or so, survey, would you rather lose your freedom to vote or your phone? And 59% of them, I'd rather lose my freedom to vote. Uh, So we have a culture that is difficult. Now, we're going to go back 2,000 years and find these two ladies are going to help us figure this one out. Uh, So this uh, Luke chapter 10 uh, with uh, Mary and Martha, familiar story. Uh, Two very, very different people, very different personalities. Mary is this slow, uh, meandering ponderer. She's a thinker. Uh, She's a mind and heart person. Martha, driven, uh, organized, efficient, punctual, busy. She's hands-on, practical. Uh, There's there's an excellent book. Uh, Joanna Weaver, um, what is it, living? Having a very heart. Having a Merry Heart in a Martha World, wonderful book, Uh, Joanna Weaver. Uh, I know uh, what Ms. Weaver says in that book among many wonderful things. Uh, If Mary is out walking through the garden and sees a rose, she'll probably pause and smell it and enjoy the fragrance. If Martha comes in the rose garden, she's going to cut a bunch of them, cut the stems at an angle, stick them in a vase, put them... Baby breath and some ferns, and she's off and running. Uh, two very different ways, and these women are going to show us two different ways to serve God. Both of them dedicated to Jesus, both of them wanting to serve, and Jesus is going to love and use both of them. So that's we're already getting into this notion of how balance. Uh, Jesus comes into uh, the world of these, these two ladies here in verse 38. Uh, Verse 38 says, now, as they went on their way, uh, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Martha's uh, hospitality instincts take over. Jesus uh, obviously deserves only the best. So she starts getting uh, everything in place. And her main thought is, what can I do for Jesus? Uh, She's into the kitchen. Immediately, and she's preparing a banquet. After all, Jesus is visiting. Now look at verse 39. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. So Mary's heart instincts take over. She's devoted also to Jesus and nothing else matters to her. We can eat later. Uh, she's busy sitting at Jesus's feet. So she's asking, what can Jesus do for me? Martha was asking, what can I do for Jesus? Martha was in the kitchen. Mary's still in the living room, enjoying the banquet. Martha wants to prepare the banquet. Two totally different approaches from these two individuals based solely on the difference of their personalities. And uh, again, nothing nothing necessarily wrong. We're going we're to hit a little bit of a snag uh, in the next verse. But, uh, but the point is both of these, uh, both these women dedicated to Jesus. Uh, here comes the snag in verse 40. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him, that's to Jesus, and said, Lord, do you not care that my sisters left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me there are, there are a lot of problems with, with that response. Uh, there's a storm of sin in, in Martha's heart, and it comes out in this particular verse. She's distracted, number one. Uh, this, this compulsion to serve and be busy and, and have everything perfect, all of those kinds of things uh, that rule in her personality uh, are taking her away from Jesus. She's she has she's got the Son of God under her roof and she's not even with him. Uh then that evolves into self-pity. After all, she felt she was the only one doing all the work. Here what aren't you going to jerk a knot in Mary? Look at her over there. She she can't help me a bit. She's out there with you. And that becomes resentment. Uh Martha, of course. And folks whose personalities are bent in this direction uh, don't like slackers, meaning in Martha's parlance, anybody who's not like her, anybody who doesn't see that obviously the thing to do is have everything exactly right. Uh, Martha is, is prone to worry uh, she's got a very narrow perspective on things. She's judgmental. She's disobedient. Uh, she's filled with anxiety. Uh, and she's got an almost heretical idolatry going here. You, you see that she comes close to ordering Jesus around. Uh, she does turn it into a question, but that doesn't uh, change much of what's in her heart. She says, aren't you going to go out there and jerk a knot in my sister Mary. Verse forty one. <clears throat> but the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things. Verse forty two. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Now, this is uh, this is an interesting approach by Jesus. He, he's not um, he's not really. Choosing one or the other. Uh, He loves both of these women. And this is going to come out. uh, This isn't the only text we're going to look at. Uh, We're going to see these two ladies again. But uh, what Jesus says is, look, Mary has chosen uh, wisely. There's only one thing necessary. First and foremost, and that's devotion to Jesus and the word. Listen to him speak. You and I have him speaking in this book. Uh, which is why Bible, time for Bible study, for Bible reading, for prayer, and all those sorts of things, again, cannot be short-circuited. Technology, wonderful, many, many things, many lives saved by technology. Uh, I would uh, argue that many more lives are lost by technology, but that's an argument that some would want to have. But uh, Jesus is not... He's not getting on either one of them. He he does point out to Martha the very obvious uh, problems that she is anxious and troubled about all the wrong things. And therefore, it would be helpful uh, if she would listen to him because her distraction is met in the gospel. Uh, Her anxiety is met by the peace that Jesus uh, can give to her. Her self-pity is met by the love that Jesus can give to her. To her, And her resentment is met by the mercy that Jesus can bring to her if she will listen and give enough time away from having everything perfect. Jesus isn't looking for perfect. He's not looking for perfect in your heart. He's not looking for perfect in my heart. He knows we're sinners and he loves us. He loves his children, but he's coming with the solution to every aspect of. All of those books those men wrote, they're all outstanding. They all point to to incredible uh, pressure points in the world in which you and I live. All of that is met in scripture through the words of Christ through this book and uh, understanding what all of that means. And the Holy Spirit given to every believer is going to use that to build. But The building is is, you don't throw up any building quickly. Uh, Not if you ever want to set foot in it. Uh, so this is a time-involved issue. And uh, that's that's a very, very important aspect of this discussion. Now, this is not, the, I was going to say, this isn't the only place in Scripture that, that Jesus or a writer of a book of Scripture will address this notion of balance. I would argue that it's all over Scripture from beginning of the Garden of Eden. Uh, Adam and Eve become imbalanced. Why? Because they get their eyes off of God, who they are walking with in the garden in total and complete and perfect communion. They start listening to the competing voices. They start listening to technology. I, I'm not I sound like I'm trashing technology, which I would be glad to do. Uh, <laughs> but that's not the, the bigger point. Is there's a satanic purpose behind all of that? Uh, and it comes in in uh, first in the Garden of Eden when when uh, you've got Adam and Eve they're listening they, they've they've been given every single thing but one little bitty command and then this uh, competing voice comes into that garden the voice of Satan and uh, and starts spreading lies about God and they choose to follow that voice and from then on uh, they are lost so there was a balance that God brings back to them through forgiveness and uh, through covenantal faithfulness. It's word hesed in, in the Old Testament, especially in the Psalter. And by the way, the Psalter, the Psalter is a wonderful place always to go for any problem that you have because it is so filled with people like ourselves who come to God and say, "Here, I don't get it. Here's what I thought you said, but here's what's happened in, in my life. How in the world can this be straight? It, it seems so crooked and the Psalter will, will uh, enable that. I, I love the, the aspect of the Psalter uh, that almost has God enabling these folks to grab him by the lapels. Uh, don't ever, obviously disrespect is one thing, uh, but uh, what the Psalter often points to are, are people saying, I, I've i done what you, think about Psalm 73. Uh, that that poor guy who looks around and says, everybody around me who's an unbeliever is flourishing. I'm sitting here, nothing is happening. I'm going down, down, down. All these people who mock you seem to be going up, up, up. That's the kind of, of uh, thing that, that you get in the Psalter from beginning to end and, and the victory of it. Uh, read, um, Palmer Robertson's book, The Flow of the Psalter, and, and realize that the book of Psalms has a flow to it. Uh, it has an overarching set of themes to it that are very, very uh, telling when you go through the Psalter. But it's all talking about balance. What do I do when I, when I get out of balance? When everything starts going off, maybe it's a physical issue. Uh, and, and those can, can arise so suddenly. Uh, Richard McSween. Uh, Jan uh, sent me a text on, on her brother's condition there. Came out of the blue, turned out to have been from, uh, from a previous surgery. Happens all the time. All of a sudden, these things can happen and completely change uh, every bit of momentum and whatever we thought we had. Here's a passage from the New Testament uh, that is all about balance. And it's uh, probably the, the uh, longest passage in the entire New Testament about it. It comes from the book of First Peter. First uh, Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2 verses 1 through 17, which uh, is not the entire chapter, but it's more than half of it. Uh, I'm just going to read a little bit of it so you can get the flow. He, he keeps bringing up a number of, of issues here, but, but think about this passage in, in terms of trying to stay in balance. Chapter two, verse one says, so put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and all envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it, you may grow up into salvation. Now he's not, that's not an evangelistic. He's not saying, come to the Lord and be saved. He's saying, Christian, you who are saved, grow up into salvation. He goes on to say, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, live as people who are free not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil but living as servants of god honor everyone love the brotherhood fear god honor the emperor there's a whole lot uh, in that passage Uh, john stott wrote a fascinating book it was actually published after he had died he died in 2011. His book came out in 2014. It's called The Radical Disciple. It's talking about balance. In fact, in that book, he has a whole chapter on the notion of balance. Uh, Stott takes this passage out of 1 Peter chapter 2, and he comes up with three couplets. Uh, it's all, it's, that's where he gets his, his balance from. We are individuals, but we are also in a church family. Newborn infants called to grow. Living stones called to fellowship. The fellowship comes among believers. That, by the way, is one of the most egregious and I think, frankly, satanic parts of COVID. Uh, COVID has convinced a lot of people never ever to go to church again. Don't get around groups. Don't get around this, that, the other. Uh, there are some some people that that is a necessity for, uh, for medicinal purposes. But uh, But without fellowship, Growth is—I won't say it's impossible, but it's—it's um, it's made virtually impossible. So what Stott uh, does with this, uh, this—these are the first eight verses. He gets this: newborn infants, meant to grow, living stones, called a the fellowship. They both go together. How do you grow? You grow in the fellowship. Uh, every one of us in this room has been given gifts by the Spirit. And we all need those gifts. The gifts that I lack, most of you have. The gifts that, that some of you lack, perhaps somebody else has. Uh, the, the thing is, it's, it's like an enormous gemstone. I use this illustration so many different ways. It's, it's helpful, I think. Uh, if, if you were to imagine a giant diamond sitting here suspended from the ceiling, uh, you could shine a lot of light on it and see a lot of the glory of it. But you've got to look through every single facet of the stone to see it in its fullness. And that is the notion of Christian fellowship. Uh, we need the full glory that comes from the church of Christ and our fellow believers. Uh, Stott goes to his next couplet to see worship and work, a vertical perspective and a horizontal perspective. Both of those, by the way, are creation ordinances. Creation ordinances are enormously important factoids of humanity. Creation ordinances are those things that God puts in place before sin ever comes into the world. So we're talking about Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, where you find eight creation ordinances. A marriage is one of them. A marriage between a, a male and a female is one of them. Work is one of them. Worship is one of them. Those are all creation ordinances that never, ever go away. Uh, When Adam and Eve sin, they get mangled. All of those things get mangled. And think about the world today. Nobody wants to work. Uh, Marriage, male and, and female don't even, the culture would tell you those words don't have meaning anymore. We know differently but the culture, because it's, it's uh, sinful culture, it's, it's trying to ignore all of those things. So these are creation ordinances, worship and work. Worship is a vertical uh, perspective. When I come to worship, it is not so that I will be entertained. It is so that I have the privilege of bringing my worship to this God who has given me everything in his son, in the power of his Holy Spirit. That is the most evangelistic practice that the world knows about. Uh, we can evangelize horizontally and we should, but the best thing you can do to any unbeliever is get them into a Bible-believing teaching church. That is the strength of evangelism. Uh, but work horizontally. And by the way, the Ten Commandments are simply summarizing these creation ordinances that I've mentioning. Uh, here's Stott's third and final uh, couplet that he comes up with. Pilgrimage. We're sojourners and exiled called to holiness. We are here. The earth is not our home. Mark Johnston, a uh, good friend from uh, Westminster days and a, and a great uh, expositor, by the way. He, there's a little uh, commentary series called Let's Study. Little paperback thing, it, it doesn't fall off into the stratosphere with, with scholarly mishmash that nobody will ever understand. Uh, they're very readable, it's a, the whole series is very, very good. Sinclair Ferguson writes some, Mark Johnston writes some. Uh, any of those Let's Study series uh, books you can get uh, are wonderful. Well, he's, he's written a book uh, that's a collection of little articles uh, that he wrote. Uh, that are, it, it's called, the earth is not my home. And it, the whole part of it is, is I'm on a pilgrimage, exactly what First Peter's talking about here, uh, up and away. Uh, but Peter talks very, very clearly in this passage in chapter 2 about being, my role as a Christian is to be the best citizen of the country that I am in, that I can possibly be. That has limits to it. When my country commands me to do something in violation of this word, it is my obligation to ignore my country and follow the scriptural teaching, whether or not that, whatever that leads to doesn't matter. But other than that, my call as a Christian is to be uh, a citizen. So this this radical disciple uh, book by Stott uh, comes down to this. He puts it in one question. What is a life of radical discipleship? His answer, we let Jesus set the agenda. He goes in, in this book, he goes into these eight uh, notions of what it means to be a balanced Christian. Number one, interestingly enough, non conformity. Uh, I am not here on this planet to make people happy on the planet. I'm here to conform to this book, not to the world. Uh, number two, Christlikeness. likeness. That was pretty obvious. Number three, maturity. I need time to grow into this living structure that God wants for me. You remember, uh elsewhere in, in the New Testament, we talk about, you know, I, I wish you, Paul gets so angry, he said, I, I can't believe it, you still need me to bring you milk. I'm tired of bringing you milk. By now you should be on meat. The, the, the whole point is maturing in Christ. And that's um, Stott's third point. His fourth one is a creation uh, ordinance concern. His fifth one is simplicity. I don't let the world goad you into, into getting such a complicated life, whether it's from the accumulation of things or whatever it might be, uh, that you can no longer be simple before God. Uh, balance is his number his sixth one. The seventh one is dependence on, on the Lord. His eighth one is how to handle death and all of these kinds of things. And uh, he even summarizes his summary this way. Jesus is Lord. He calls, we follow. Now, when we get back uh, to, to Mary and Martha here, I mentioned that we see them again, and, and I just want to allude very quickly to John chapter 11. We're going to meet these two again. John chapter 11 is that famous chapter about Lazarus, and most of the attention, rightly so, Perhaps. Uh, goes to Lazarus. Lazarus is the brother of Mary and Martha. And they were friends. By this point in the 11th chapter of John, Jesus has come to know this family and has spent time with them. And as you remember, Jesus is grieved to hear that Lazarus has died. Uh, There's a couple of very interesting uh, verses in in this 11th chapter. The shortest verse in the Bible is in the 11th chapter. Uh, Verse 17, maybe. No, verse 35. Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the the Bible. But the the issue in chapter 11, Jesus, when he's dealing with Lazarus, you remember he waits. He gets news that Lazarus has died. He's not there. And he waits. And and Mary and Martha pick up on that and say, well, you know, if you had come earlier, maybe you could have gotten to him in the last couple of days of his life and saved his life. Well, Jesus, of course, knows he's about to resurrect Lazarus. So Jesus isn't worried about that. Jesus wants Lazarus to have died and to have died thoroughly and to be wrapped up and in a tomb before he gets to him. Uh, but Jesus' reaction in John chapter 11 is, is one uh, there's an onomatopoeic word in John chapter 11. Onomatopoeia is, is what poets use. If you look at a Marvel comic book and you see bam, wham, those are onomatopoeic words. They're words meant to convey a sound. Uh, there's an onomatopoeic word in John chapter 11 that, that most, uh, commentation, commentaries just don't, uh, don't talk about and, and scriptural translations can't really get at. Uh, it, it's tied up with Jesus weeping and making noises. The, the, uh, the Greek behind that is the noise of a horse. Uh, Jesus is so mad at death and the fact that death has taken his friend, even though he's going to raise him and even though he's going to be with Jesus eventually for the rest of his lifetime, uh, Jesus is upset at, at death, uh, which uh, is is a comfort, I think, uh, to everybody. But uh, But he goes and we see a different Martha here. If you remember, when Martha sees Jesus, there's no resentment toward her sister. Her sister Mary has, has not changed. She, she's going to go uh, anoint Jesus' feet and all of this uh, sort of thing and, and do what she's always done. And Jesus is going to say, it's exactly what you should be doing. But Mary, but uh, Martha does not take offense at that anymore. If you read through John 11 and the first uh, five or six verses of 12, you'll see a different Martha. Martha has grown Martha is getting better. Jesus still loves both of them. They are both the same personalities they were, but they're growing in their faith and they're being more balanced. And that, um, the progress that you see there is, is what I think these five verses, why they exist in Luke at the end of chapter 10, where they do. The same lesson is needed desperately by these 12 disciples that are following Jesus around. Uh, When that passage begins uh, by saying um, as they went on their way, the they there is at the very least Jesus with these 12 men and he's teaching them and he's telling them you too need to be balanced. You too need to understand how to take the personality that you have and balance it and make it the best and grow it in maturity And uh, the lesson that Mary and Martha illustrate uh, here that begin to uh, get teaching from Jesus in Luke, um, they have learned very, very well. It is Martha, in fact, who makes one of the greatest statements of faith in all of scripture in John chapter 11. When he asks her, do you believe? And she says, yes, I believe you are the son of God. Uh, It is a stunning moment in, in the gospel of John and that's hard to do. But that's the lesson also that each of us have to learn. Uh, this balance, this, this notion of spending enough time in the word with Jesus, trying to get past a culture that will not let you go. That Jacques Ellul, uh quote, he talks about the fact that technology leads to more technology, leads to more, and they put more and more of our lives in it so that now you almost can't do without this crazy thing. Uh, it's uh, it's a navigational tool. It's this. It's that. Uh, but it's not this navigational tool. So balance back to Jesus. Jesus speaks. We say when and how high, and grow in that, and we will know better and better maturity in the Lord and balance in this life. Let's pray, Father. Uh, as we as we meet here again, I grieve. The loss of, of two friends, Harry Reeder and Tim Keller. I think about Kathy Keller and I lift her up this day, Father. Uh, I think about Cindy Reeder and lift her up this day. These two uh, wonderful, wonderful teaching women uh, who who were married to such stalwarts of the faith, Father. I know they will be strong in their faith, but I also know they're grieving. Uh, just like this poor Katie we heard about, imagine losing your father and this infant, a daughter, a child, uh, all within a short space of time. Father, there's a lot of pain and suffering, but that's why we have a fellowship. Help us lean on one another, build one another up, stay in the word, worship, work to the best of our ability, but stay focused on Jesus and grow in grace as you build us up into the people you wish us to be. Thank you for your grace, your mercy that helps us grow. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.